in that last hundred thousand years, we've had we've experienced uh, a tremendous amount of change. And I would tell you that today, what's transformational and truly revolutionary is that uh, we we are experiencing exponential change, and we're uh, we're getting ready to have exponential change where the exponents are going to double, and that's going to cause a rupture. Uh, in all the uh, the different mental models we use for leadership and strategy development. Citizens of the United States of America, they, they don't recognize they're, that they're now combatants and that their homes and, and their office spaces are actually virtual battle space. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Steve Bannock. Steve is a retired U.S. Army colonel who served for 27 years in uniform. He commanded the 3rd Ranger Battalion, leading them on their parachute jump into Afghanistan in October 2001, just a month after 9-11. He later went on to lead the Army's School of Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He's recently written a series of fascinating articles on the notion of virtual war. In this conversation, he delves into what that concept entails, what its hallmarks are, how it will change conflict in the future, how it is already changing conflict, and he makes the case that we need to fundamentally rethink the way we conceptualize war if we want to be able to succeed in the virtual battle space. During this conversation, he makes several references to those articles, uh, so if you'd like to read them, uh, find this podcast episode on the MWI website at mwi.usma.edu, and we'll have links there. Real quick, before we get into the discussion, just a couple notes. Hopefully, you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple seconds and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really helps us to get the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Steve Bannock. Steve, thanks very much for uh, taking some time to, to discuss uh, a couple of articles that you've written uh, fairly recently. Can you, can you just, by, by, to give you some context, can you talk a little bit about, uh, about your background? Yeah, so I'm a retired uh, U.S. Army uh, colonel. I spent 27 years in the, in the military, nine years in the, uh, in the special operations uh, community, and I uh, was fortunate enough to, between being a student deputy director and director, uh, to spend five years at uh, the uh, School of Advanced Military Studies. And that's uh, where I concluded my military career, uh, three years as the SAMS director. And uh, since then, I, uh, I, I've uh, gotten out of the Army and uh, have been a, uh, a uh, design thinking, strategy development, uh, leadership, uh, executive uh, coach, and, uh, and mentor. And, uh, and I've, uh, you know, found uh, here recently, uh, since last summer, that, uh, you know, there's some things going on on the uh, natural security front that I wanted to uh, kind of focus some attention on, and, and virtual war is one of them. Okay, so uh, that's a great segue into this this uh, quite recent article that you published uh, on Small Wars Journal, um, and it it's unique. It's it's different than the past couple that you published, but they all share kind of this one theme, and that's this notion of virtual war. I wonder if you can just kind of describe what you mean by that when you use that term. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote the article uh, for clarity. Uh, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of us, uh, you know, get caught up in the inertia of everyday activity and, and we really uh, can't see what's going on. We can't see the, you know, force for the trees. And, and so, uh, as I look out and I see what's going on, uh, it's pretty clear, uh, that we have, uh, war, uh, raging in, in virtual battle space, uh, and, uh, and it's playing out in, in physical, uh, battle space. And, uh, the virtual war, uh, is, uh, causing a revolution in, in human affairs. And, uh, that's quite different, uh, than a revolution in military affairs. And we've had four revolutions in military affairs, uh, over the last, uh, you know, 110 years or so, give or take. And, uh, you know, the root reforms, the, uh, the world war, uh, two inter interwar period reforms, 1919 and 1939, the Vietnam RMA, and then of course the precision strike revolution in military affairs in, in the 1990s. But, uh, those revolutions in military affairs affected just the military. And what we're experiencing right now in this revolution in human affairs is, is uh, our homes uh, and the places that we work are now virtual uh, battlegrounds. And uh, virtual war takes place in those spaces that uh, heretofore it would just never happen. Uh, we'd, we'd never have actual war in our homes. But, uh, you know, and, and I can I can talk uh to this as, as much as you want, uh, but, uh, you know, war is fundamentally about controlling the will. As Clausewitz uh, talked about the will of a, uh, a person a, a, or a population or a country to, you know, for specific uh, sponsors, uh, goals and objectives, et cetera. So, uh, you know, if I could, I'd like to just describe what I think virtual war is, uh, how it's executed and, and kind of what the end game is. And, and I just say that, uh, you know, as I put in this last paper uh, that I published on 2 February, you know, virtual war is a global systems approach uh, to achieve uh, social control. Um, fortunately, uh, that has not been achieved by any major nation state actor or uh, individual uh, sets of, uh, you know, terror type organizations. Uh, you know, how it's uh, virtual war is executed every day. You know, the heuristics uh, for virtual war, offensive and defensive cyber operations, social media, uh, information operations, and we see that being played out, uh, the use of fake news, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, and then stealth technologies and, and different uh, cloaking techniques. And I think the imperative before us here is that uh, we've got to synthesize each one of those uh, six capabilities that I talked about there into a whole of nation, uh, national security policy, a strategy, and a doctrine. So, uh, this is much greater than, uh, you know, than, than, you know, anything that we've done on the military front. It's going to require you know, really a revolutionary public and private sector partnership to uh, secure our country as we go uh, forward. And, you know, as I put in the paper, you know, the end game for virtual war uh, is to control and influence the, the will of a, a person, group, or a larger population, you know, to achieve ideological objectives and, and to support uh you know, some major cause. And, and of course, we're seeing that uh, on the on the military front, and uh, we, we see it every day in, in our country on the uh, domestic and, and political front. So I'll stop right there. You know, we, we try to kind of categorize and conceptualize things, put things into bins. And so we've got the, uh, we've got the domains and with land, sea, 
air, cyberspace, and space, and you've got different dimensions, like the information dimension. And when you talk about this, it's natural to kind of want to put them into those bins and, and think specifically about cyberspace domain and the information dom dimension. Um, is that is that accurate or do those models not really help us to kind of make sense of what you're talking about? Yeah, I'll, so th that's, and I think you might've saw that in, in the paper. Uh, so uh, we, we have a number of frameworks uh, that, uh, that are actually di different heuristics, the different tools or instruments that are being played out in virtual war. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, cyber and information and uh, of course, asymmetric warfare, political warfare, gray zone operations, hybrid warfare, uh, cognitive maneuver. These are all different, uh, you know, uh, you know, labels or heuristics that have been uh, bantered about. And I, and I would tell you that each one of those, uh, uh, is legitimate in terms of, of being a, a tool that can be uh, used and conceptualized. Uh, but all all of those uh, frameworks and, and different nomenclatures are propagated in the virtual domain. And then they're further shaped in the cognitive and the moral domains before they're then manifested in the physical domain environments, which include air, land, sea, and of course, outer space. So uh, you know, to your point, I, I think we have, uh, you know, some real cognitive incongruence and fratricide going on here because air, land, sea, and outer space are, are really tactical entities in the course of this discussion. And, uh, and, they're, and they're not domains, they're actually environments. And uh, so, you know, strategically, uh, we, we don't have the, the you know, the, the framework uh, to conceptualize this the way we probably need to have it. And as I put in my paper, it starts in the virtual domain. That's that's where, when you look on, you know, what, what happened on 9-11, uh, the, the virtual domain uh, served as the vehicle to coordinate all the activities that happened in the physical battle space. Uh, there was, you know, it, you know, so we went from the virtual, we thought about it in the, in the cognitive domain. Uh, there was some Moral domain considerations, no doubt, uh, by the threats. Uh, they, what they thought about uh, doing to us was perfectly allowable uh, by the by the Quran, uh, the 19 hijackers, and of course, it played itself out in the physical domain, and uh, you know, in the air and and on the land in this particular case, uh, in those environments. So I think there's, you know, from a multi-domain battle perspective, there's uh, there's cognitive incongruence, and until we fix it, we're not going to win this war. I want to kind of ask you, you, you know, you started out by framing this um, in terms of, you know, what it has in common and what it doesn't have in common with previous uh, revolutions in military affairs. Um, is it is it accurate, do you think, to think of it as a revolution or as more sort of um, a step in an evolutionary process? And, and, and if so, what kind of trends can you look back throughout history, especially throughout recent history since, you know, post-war history um, that led you to conclude that this is kind of where we're at and this is the future? Well, I, I would first, you know, say that, uh, you know, and again, I've noted, I noted Kurzweil and, and uh, Werner Vinge's writing on the, on the, on the you know, tech, uh, technology singularity that uh, is much closer than, than uh, what, when they wrote about in the 1990s and in, in uh, Kurzweil's book in 2005, uh, the singularity is near. Uh, but when you look, as Kurzweil highlighted, you know, in the in the 10 uh, billion years with a B of of the evolutionary track, uh, the last 100,000 uh, years is really a drop in the bucket. 
But in that last hundred thousand years, we've had we've experienced uh, a tremendous amount of change. And I would tell you that today, what's transformational and truly revolutionary uh, is that. Uh, we, we are experiencing exponential change. And, we're, and as I talked about in the paper, uh, we're getting ready to have exponential change where the exponents are going to double. And that's going to cause a rupture uh, in all the, uh, the different mental models we use for leadership and strategy development and, and, uh, and all the other things that we use in society today. All the governance models are, are going to collapse under the weight uh, of this uh, of this change. And, and the other really key distinction between the revolution in military affairs and what I'm talking about here in a revolution in human affairs is every human being is, is affected uh, by this. Uh, you know, if they're connected in any way, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the global network, then they're a virtual combatant. That leads into another question that I, I wanted to ask you about something in particular that you wrote in this most recent paper. You wrote that the goal of virtual war is social control. And I think traditionally when we think about social control, uh, we think of it through this sort of lens of controlling the information that people have access to. Um, you've talked about how actually the or you wrote about it, how actually the proliferation of tech enabled or internet enabled devices, um, iPhone tracking protocols, you said other personal devices, elements of smart cities um, actually enhance the ability to uh, sort of implement this social control. Is there a tension there? Have we, are we, do we need to kind of think differently about the role that information plays in social control? Well, yeah, and understand uh, the role it plays. And again, this is not new. Uh, you know, Vinge and, and Kurzweil and, and, uh, and Eric uh, Schmidt and, and many others have warned us about this uh, for decades now. And uh, uh, there is no doubt uh, that social control uh, is the goal of virtual war. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at uh, Russia's uh, uh, Gresmanov uh, doctrine uh, and, and what China's doing with their one belt, one road, uh, and their South China Sea and their China 2025 uh, policies they put out. Uh, what what you know? In, in, take the China example uh, here is China has really bounded uh, our action as as a superpower. The United States they they've bounded it uh, in in uh, in virtual space with the China 2025 uh, policy, which is a massive technology overreach. They've bounded our action in physical space in the South China Sea, and they've bounded our action on land uh, with uh, their one belt, one road strategy. And of course, the Russians uh, in the Ukraine and in the, in the Crimea are also pushing towards social control to reestablish themselves, uh, the Russians to reestablish themselves as a superpower and the Chinese, uh, you know, to get to that status. So, uh, you know, and this is not new for, for China. I mean, uh, you know, some 2,500 years ago, I mean, Sun Tzu, you know, wrote the Supreme Art of War, so subdue your enemy without fighting. So that's the essence of social control. China is just doing what's part of their culture. I mean, they're thinking centuries ahead uh, where we think in terms of uh, election cycles. And the, the more technology that we get out there, and as I noted from uh, global satellite, uh, you know, imagery all the way down to uh, the different uh, uh, you know, financial instruments that uh, that we can be tracked on, and every point in between, uh, our social security numbers, you know, uh, you know, iPhone, Fitbit, you know, I mean, there are so many 
different aspects of artificial intelligence that every single day where we, each one of us, uh, when we get on online and the different devices that we have, we, we leave fingerprints everywhere we go that someone, uh, if they, you know, and, and I put this in the paper, the, the person who masters uh, virtual battle space campaigning uh, that can take these, uh, these feeds from all these different resources and, and bring them together to control uh, the instruments that we use to, to, to live by, uh, you know, that, that is not that far away, which is why I'm, I'm writing the way I'm writing right now, because I can see what's coming and, and, uh, and we're much closer, uh, to this happening than we've ever been before. One of the things that I, I've found interesting throughout this conversation is that, um, this is something that is fundamentally new, but you're, you're still able to kind of apply, um, at least bits and pieces of the way that we conceptualize conflict today and have uh, historically uh, to this model. And you you write in, I believe in a previous article, you talked about uh, virtual battle space maneuver. Uh, we think of maneuver as being a very real and physical thing. Uh, what does that mean to do that in the in the virtual battle space? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, you, we, we literally have had hundreds of examples. Uh, so nine, the, the attack on 9-11 was the first major operation in in uh, in, in virtual war. Uh, it was the first successfully ex- ex- executed virtual war campaign by the 19 terrorists. Everything that they did to strike uh, in New York City, uh, you know, the plane that went down to Pennsylvania and hit, hit the Pentagon, every bit of that was again. And I, I go back to the to the framework that I used. Every bit of it was propagated. In, in, in the virtual domain, uh, there was like, there was a cognitive domain, how they were going to think about the strike and then the morality and the moral domain and how they wanted to see it play out in, in the physical domain. And what they chose in the physical domain was to have an effect, uh, on the, on the, in the, the ground environment. And they were going to use the air as the other environment to, to bring that about. So the virtual war campaigning began, uh, you know, in earnest on, on nine 11 and, and we've seen in, uh, in you know one of the papers that I wrote about was uh, you know from 9/11 to London. We've seen it in London and you know Orlando and, and so many other places, Paris and Belgium and, and so many other places around the world. Literally hundreds of attacks where we see virtual campaigning uh, translated into physical battle space campaigning, uh, where where horrific acts are are uh, are exercised by just you know, uh, individual actors, uh, that produce tremendous amount of carnage and, and that is the new normal. And, and so we've got to recognize, uh, what, what it is we're seeing, uh, you know, and, and, and really understand the the power that's here. You know, when you look at, uh, when you look at virtual war, you know, we, we have, you know, an opposition actor, and of course we have the same capability. We can maintain 24 seven, you know, indirect, uh, global influence on a population or on, you know, on different machines, uh, you know, at a fraction of the investment. So it's pennies on a dollar to wage global war. Uh, you know, I, I, I parachuted in Afghanistan right after, right after 9-11. It was at that point as I was watching 9-11 go down, I realized that something fundamentally different, revolutionary was upon us. And you know, I'm writing about it. I'm writing about exactly what was there. But as we went into Afghanistan, we talked about risk to the mission and risk to the assaulting forces. Well, that goes away in virtual war. 
there, there is there is no uh, real risk to the to the mission or risk to the assaulting forces. Uh, you know, you have uh, plausible deniability, uh, and so you know the the theater level access conundrums that we had, I mean, they go away. Uh, you know, you can deliver uh, virtual munitions on demand uh, to advance national policy objectives. You know, in places like China and North Korea and uh, you know, Russia and Iran or anybody else that you want to, uh, in unprecedented ways. And, and, uh, you know, the real challenge with all this, uh, is, you know, from an international law standpoint is what, what constitutes an act of war now, uh, we've crossed that barrier. Uh, all that stuff is being, uh, addressed, uh, not in open sources. Uh, and then of course, you know, what constitutes a just war going forward here and, and, and all these things, uh, are going to come to a head is, uh, again, I go back to the technological advances in, in this rupture that's getting ready to happen in, in our mental models and how we view the world. You know, that's, this is all going to come to a head when we move from this exponential change to uh, change that uh, where the exponential change uh, is occurring with the exponent doubling. And it's going to really put us in a place that, uh, that we're not, I don't think we're prepared for yet. I think you've done a pretty good job of painting a vivid picture from a strategic perspective um, of some of the strategic shifts in our mindset that that uh, that maybe need to happen in order to be able to compete in this virtual battle space. Uh, what about if you drill down to kind of the tactical level? Are there changes in the type of um, skill sets that uh, warfighters are going to need to uh, to succeed in this battle space? And does does even our concept of who is a warfighter change? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I put in the paper in in a, in a series of all these papers, uh, I mean, and, and this is this is the thing that you know the the citizens, you know, our citizens of the United States of America, they they don't recognize they're, that they're now combatants and that their homes and, and their office spaces are actually virtual battle space, and and that uh, you know the, the the entire paradigm has changed. So as I wrote in the paper, you know, uh, from uh, the seams that we've got to, in, in the silos that we've got to deconstruct, uh, you know, we've got to, uh, our, our private sector, our national industrial base uh, controls the real virtual war uh, capability. Uh, and for now, uh, the private sector, with some exceptions uh, on different programs, you know, is is in the margins. And, you, and you, if you go back in history to World War II, we mobilized the entire country uh, to win uh, World War II. And we have a, a similar situation before us right now. Our private sector is the decisive uh, capability. Uh, virtual, virtual battle space uh, is the decisive terrain that must be seized. Uh, our uh, soldiers, uh, you know, all our service members, our law enforcement, uh, we, ne we need a new uh policy, a new, uh, a new strategy, a new doctrine that goes across, uh, you know, the public and private sector uh, boundaries. And uh, we need to learn together. We need to develop uh, uh, new weaponry uh, and, and new tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, for uh, our virtual assaulting forces, if you will. You know, when you look at what's going on uh, in the Ukraine and, and how the Russians are using uh, virtual war uh, and making a transition from virtual war uh, into 
uh, kinetic war, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's all there for us. But the question is, are, are, are we, are we studying it? Are we able to, uh, you know, have, have the foresight to extrapolate out what that means for us, uh, going forward. And, uh, I, I'm not sure, I am sure that, uh, you know, the American people, uh, don't recognize what's upon them. And, and we are definitely, uh, in a reactionary position right now. When you talk about, um, sort of mobilizing, uh, the private sector, uh, the challenges, of course, you know, very different now than it was in World War II for a whole host of reasons, you know, uh, probably not even maybe chief among them, but among them uh, increased, you know, global investment patterns and uh, cross-border mergers and acquisitions. And it just makes it a lot more difficult to define, is this an American company or not? Do you think that in the, in the, uh, in December, uh, the Trump administration released a national security strategy and they talk specifically about this notion of a national security innovation base. Do you think that that's a good first step? Yeah, I absolutely. And, you know, I, and I admire what the, what the Trump administration has done on many different fronts. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and, and so let me just take this in a slightly different direction. And, and so the real tension is, uh, can we bring ourselves together to create uh, the whole of nation uh, policy strategy and doctrine that, that, that we need before uh, we hit this, uh, this exponential uh, growth period? Uh, that that's gonna you know it, as I put in the paper it, it's gonna it's gonna feel like a you know a, a tech technological tsunami has hit it hit us and so you know uh, one of the things I talk about in our in our paper that that fits nicely here is this discussion about the you know our our new marginal line that we have today and our overwhelming propensity for physical battle space maneuver. Uh, you know, historically, if we look back at what the French did uh, between 1919 and 1939, they spent more money than all the Allies combined building the Maginot Line. And of course, right across their border, uh, the Germans were preparing for the physical battle space Blitzkrieg. And of course, they tested it out in Poland in 1939 before they they, they hammered the French with it. And despite that, uh, you know, the French were uh, caught completely off guard to a new form of warfare. And that's exactly where we're at today. Our focus on, on uh, new helmets, new, you know, pistols, you know, the, the tactical equipment, uh, you know, I put in the paper that, you know, that, you know, the, that we're engulfed in, the, in a process trap uh, and we're unable to use uh, different mental models that allow us to deal with complexity. We're very, very good at addressing technical challenges, destroying tank formations, uh, but we, we have not learned how to structure learning to deal with complex adaptive challenges and how to deal with something like virtual war. I want to ask you, I guess, maybe one last question about uh, specifically about this most recent article. You you have a section where you talk about something that called the Arnold Avatar. I found that really right. interesting. I wonder if you can if you can kind of discuss that. Yeah. So you know when you when you talk about the you know different tactics, uh, techniques, and, and uh, procedures, and then and again, this is just one of many many, and there's a lot of uh, you know different classified approaches and things like that. Uh, but uh, so. You, you you know the uh, you know the Arnold Avatar. I laid out four different uh, approaches, and in each one of them have different uh, nuanced aspects of them or permeations to them. But uh, so you know when you when you're talking about uh, you know grooming targets and networks, I mean it can happen 
human to human, uh, individual person with an individual person. It can happen uh, between uh, a man and a woman posing as a couple to influence an, another group uh, of uh, human beings. Uh, it can be a, a individual trying to influence a certain social network that cause that social network to do certain things. Uh, so you influence them in virtual space to plant, uh, you know, ideas and things like that, uh, that, that, that you want to have uh, implemented in physical battle space. And of course you have uh, human uh, to machine or computer interface uh, where you're, you know, the, you know, the classic, uh, you know, hacking and manipul manipulating and, and uh, spoofing operations. And then, and of course the machine, the machine, uh, you know, interface, uh, you know, what, what hackers and computer programmers can, uh, can leverage. So there's a lot of different uh, ways that you can look at those four different uh, aspects of the, Arnold avatar uh, to groom targets, to shape different networks, to shape individuals and populations. Uh, and then there's other things coming that, you know, also talked about uh, in terms of, you know, holographic armored formations that, that have, you know, the, the, the electronic warfare, uh, social media, they emit a physical signature uh, and, and things like that, uh, where you can draw the attention of an opposition force and get them to reveal their position. And of course you can strike and, and uh, once you determine their location and, and take them off the, the battlefield. And uh, so, uh, and then, you know, there's other things, you know, I, I noted the Aloha scenario in there and also uh, the scenario of the Vincennes and both of those scenarios, there was, there was no, uh, in particular in the Vincennes, there was no uh, malicious uh, virtual interplay uh, between the commander of the Vin Vincennes and, uh, and that aircraft that he that is uh, his forces shot down. So, and I just want to have for listeners, the Vincennes is the U.S. Uh, what was it a missile destroyer, right? That in the late '80s shot down the um, Iranian air flight. Yeah, 19, uh, 1990, uh, 1988, yeah. And again, there was, there was no uh, uh, virtual interference in that, in that particular scenario. In, uh, you know, Gary Klein's book, you know, The Sources of Power and Recognition Prime Decision-Making, I, I would say that recognition prime decision-making uh, going forward is going to be seriously challenged uh, because you're not going be to be sure of what it is you're seeing. Uh, by way of virtual uh, battle space maneuver, uh, you're going to have avatars. You're going to have spoofing, and we're and we're already experiencing this. Uh, that is really uh, going to cause that. Uh, and again, I talk about the collapse of some of these mental models. The recognition prime decision making mental model uh, is is already collapsing under the weight of virtual war. I said that was going to be the last question that I asked, but I had, I want I want to ask one more. Um, you've kind of. Uh, I think if I'm, unless I'm misinterpreting, it sounds like you, you believe that we're at least a bit behind the power curve vis-a-vis -vis our adversaries on some of this stuff. And I know that arbitrary time horizons are, uh, well, they're just that they're arbitrary. Uh, but if we look over the next 10 to 20 years, is that a period of time within which we can close some of the gaps that exist between us and those potential adversaries? Well, it all depends, uh, uh you know, on, on the, on the last, uh, you know, lines of, of the, this last article I wrote, you know, do we have the foresight to see in the will uh, to mobilize this country to do what we need to do? Uh, I mentioned the China 2025 strategy that they have. That is a, 
absolutely massive uh, uh, technology overreach. I, you know, the former uh, NSA director, uh, you know, talked about uh, China's uh, theft of our intellectual property. And all, all, all our big tech companies are in China right now. Our, our intellectual property is being harvest, harvested by China. Uh, they understand, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the virtual war indirect approach that I, that I talked about in the paper. Uh, they, they really, really understand what's going on. And, and China, China has a scaling capability given the, the population, uh, uh, that they have, uh, and, and, uh, and also the, the governance model have them. I mean, it's just absolutely repressive, uh, governance model. Uh, it, it's something that we don't have. So, uh, you know, I, I, w- I would say uh, that w- we have tremendous capability. We have even greater potential. But the real question is, are, are we actually going to mobilize the country and do something uh, to preserve our way of life going forward? Well, Steve, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for uh, what's really been kind of a remarkable conversation, I think. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, yeah, I think these are unprecedented uh, times here, and uh, we're we're really we're at a, a, a one of these points, and we've been here before in history. You know, World War II was was another one of those times uh, where you know our, our destiny really is in our hands, and uh, and this is gonna this is gonna take uh, a lot more private sector leadership uh, uh, to get us where we need to be than I think most people realize. Certainly, thanks, Steve. Roger that. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it's a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.